Matthew 5, verse number 13. Jesus continues the Sermon on the Mount, and he says to his disciples and those gathered, he says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's what we just sang, by the way, at the end of the service. Yours is the glory. Do not think, Jesus said, that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it's all accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And I don't know that we'll get to this verse tonight, but I'm going to read it because it would have blown the mind of everybody in the audience that day. Jesus said, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Um, I want to preach all of this, but I, I don't know that I can do it and actually do it well. And so I know that we'll be able to get through the, the metaphors that Jesus gave, the salt and the light. The message is called conspicuous Christianity. And the reason why I'm calling that, uh, the message that, is because there really is no such thing as a genuine, constantly hidden Christian life. Not in, not in America, not here. That, that literally the norms of the gospel cannot be carried out by a Christian who is constantly secret about his or her faith. So the Lord actually calls all of us to live conspicuously, not obnoxiously, not arrogantly, not abrasively, but conspicuously as Christian. What does that mean? It means we're not ashamed of Jesus. That, that talking to others about him is not a legalistic duty that is a chain to us because we've made the mistake of asking him to be our savior and now we've got to go out and talk to people about him. That's not what we're talking about. That's a religious persuasion. Ultimately, conspicuous Christianity is lived out in what is often called the naturally supernatural. It just means you're living in the flow of the Holy Spirit, however he might flow through you, but you're not trying to produce fruit like this, but you're just walking out your faith. And I'm gonna tell you what people do. People easily talk about that which they love most. And so back in the day before everything was digital, all of us had, a, all of us men typically had a wallet and in that wallet there's this little plastic sleeve and when you opened it up, remember what was in there? Photos of children and grandchildren. And we would sometimes say, hey, do you got any kids? I sure do. Here's my, this was last year, this was fifth grade, this was, and we'd go through that way. And it's so easy to talk about that which we love. And so the, the, the vein that we need to hit in, in, in Christian living is that if we will fall more deeply in love with Jesus, 
then we will talk about him with a greater frequency and a greater ease. When I feel like it's my job to witness, I don't do well and I don't do it often. But when I am walking in unbroken patterns of loving Jesus because I know and sense how much he loves me, that's when it's so easy to talk, to him, talk about him wherever I go. And it doesn't feel like work and you don't feel like you've got to be careful and you're, you know, hope you don't offend anybody. You're just talking about the one that you love the most. And so Jesus is calling us here to live in a way that people see our Christianity. And I will just say, I'm not sure that we've always done a great job with that in the evangelical church or the charismatic church or put it all under the bubble of the Western church. I don't know that we've done a great job of living conspicuously. So Jesus is going to help us in the Sermon on the Mount. And I want you to remember, he's telling us who we are. I may apply it by telling us what we can do, but he's actually saying this is who you are as one of my followers, as one of my redeemed, as one who is one of the Father's beloved, who's been accepted by the Father through my sacrifice. This is who you are, church. So he opens up with this, what I call a seasoned life. He's going to talk about salt. He says, as he speaks of a seasoned life, he gives us this current reality. This is us right now. He says, you, plural, are the salt of the earth. In Georgia, we've got some new friends here from New Hampshire. This is how we say it down south. We say, y'all are the salt of the earth. That's how we would say it. You, plural, are the salt of the earth. So a lot has been written about this statement. What does Jesus mean? You know, that's actually a phrase now that is bandied about. People say, oh, that, guy, that old guy, he's salt of the earth kind of person. But what does it actually mean? Well, let me tell you what Jesus meant when he was telling his disciples this identifying mark about them. Um, there's a couple of things that happened with salt in Jesus' day. And one of them was this. So salt was constantly used. Remember, they had no refrigeration. And so they didn't have ice cubes. They didn't have ice freezers. They didn't have ice coolers. No Yetis back in the first century in Jerusalem. And so what did they have to do? If they wanted to keep stuff from corroding or spoiling or decaying, they packed it in salt. They would take salt. They would get it out of certain bodies of water, the Dead Sea or other places. They would take the salt from that and they would pack, pack it around meat to keep it from spoiling because natural corruption would eventually take over, but the salt served as a preserving agent that resisted decay. And so Jesus is saying, that's what my followers do. My followers are the salt of the earth, partly because wherever they go, wherever they bring me when they're gathered together, wherever their influence is making inroads into a community or a home or a school or a business, it serves as a pres preservational force against decay it is in essence a preservative and so Jesus is reminding us here by way of application that our presence I know we take a lot of heat from the culture I know that the the, the church of Jesus Christ the Christian body of believers as diverse and multifaceted as we are the the biblical representation of that to our culture our culture hates that I mean, listen, let's not pretend like they, they love us or anything. They don't love us. Jesus said they wouldn't, and they don't. They hate us, but they don't realize just how much they need us. Why? Because we're actually the only human organism on planet Earth that serves as a barrier for the fullness of depravity from taking over. 
It's the presence of the church, the presence of God in the church, our fidelity to live out his life through us. Listen, if the church wasn't here, there'd be no reason for God to withhold judgment. And so literally our presence and our uh, kingdom activism in the sense of coming against the tides of culture, um, this is not a political issue for me. This is a biblical issue. The, the issue that has taken place with abortion, and we're seeing these things, this rage against the two sides of the abortion issue from New York and Canada, gleefully celebrating some of the most abominable abortion laws to now these laws in Georgia and Mississippi and Louisiana that are just mind-blowing. What was it, Missouri? They're just mind-blowing that this is all happening at once. And I, I say to myself, that's the preservational aspect of us being the salt of the earth. And so when we think of Jesus' statement, you are the salt of the earth, I want you to think we're a preserving agent. We are, we are those people that by our presence and by our voice, we push back on the corrosion of a corrupt culture. But maybe a little less intense, maybe a little bit more light would be this. Salt doesn't just prevent decay. Salt promotes flavor. What does that mean? Well, uh, even the Bible says an unsalted egg is nasty. That's a real loose paraphrase, but that is actually in the Bible. It's like there, there are just certain things that on their own are as bland as bland can be. You throw a little salt on it, hey, your arteries might be getting hardened, but it tastes real good. And so Jesus is, is telling in essence, when he says you're the salt of the earth, the application could be, well, in his day, it was, still, it was also used for promoting flavor. Listen, we are not to be bland. The goal of the gospel is not to produce a bunch of kind of unhappy, miserable, unstirred people. Religion produces that, but that is not the goal of the gospel, and it's not the work of the Holy Spirit. God is not, it is not, it is not a fruit of the Spirit to be boring. And so there needs to be a little flavor on the church. That means we are to be distinct. That means we are to make things stand out and set apart. There's got to be a, a touch on our lives as we're walking out kingdom living in a life that is fit for a king. There ought to be a little flavor on us. I, I think part of Western religion has uh, made an idol out of conformity. I remember when I first got saved, the goal was conformity. I didn't even know what was happening to me, but it was happening. I was in a... Uh, uh, Good people, bad system. Let me just say that was a bad system, but you had to look a certain way. Uh, you had to dress a certain way. You had to sing a certain way. You, you had to move a certain way, behave a certain way. There were things you couldn't touch, taste, eat, or drink. And all of these things were just kind of given to us because the goal was not unity, it was uniformity. And so what happened is we lost our flavor. And the only thing that ended up kind of arriving there was, was people who had the same flavor that moved from a different place. And they came. But listen, um, I, I don't want to be cheesy with this, but we need a little spice on us, amen? We need a little seasoning. We need a little flavor. Um, when I go to Marble Slab been a long three days I'm thinking about it right now but when we go to marble slab I don't order vanilla I don't get give me a single scoop vanilla cone I think they'd probably kick me out as an ice cream heretic I want some flavor I want some mix all right y'all aren't flowing me on that so I'm moving to the next thing salt produces thirst 
Prevents decay, promotes flavor, produces thirst. You all know this in the natural. You eat something salty, you better have something to drink. Jesus is, I think, and part of the application of his teaching there is that wherever we go, there should be enough kingdom on us coming out from us that people look at us and start thirsting for whatever is coming out of us. That literally, I mean, that's how some of us were one to Jesus. Always the testimony and, 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 and the truth gets in there. But the first thing that caught my attention for the gospel was the dude who was living it. He, he, was, he was witnessing to me, but it wasn't so much his preaching that was drawing me. Matter of fact, I hated his Bible thumping at that time, but there was something on his life and I knew it. I was like, he's got something I don't have, I've never had, and it makes me thirsty. It makes me want that. And so when we're living as the salt of the earth, our lives will, without striving, without obeying a legalistic code, without trying to make something happen to prove that we're really is, it's going to push back on corrosion and decay. Uh, I, I feel like this word's kind of lingering right in my mind. Some of you are the salt that is preventing your home from being corrupt, and I bless you in the name of Jesus. You may be the only person in that family or that extended family, and your presence and your commitment is the salt that is keeping the devil on the outside. That's a good person to be. That's a great, that's a great place to be salty. And then he, and again, it promotes flavor. So listen, um, I don't know why I keep coming back to that, but I, I just feel like some of you need permission to get free. You do, man. Christianity's not boring. If, if, Christ, if your Christianity's boring, you're not doing it right. No, seriously, it, 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 there's nothing boring about God and pursuing God and being encountered by God and learning about God and obeying God. It's really not boring. The Bible's not boring. I mean, there's some passages about, you know, what size the temple instruments need to be and all that, that, you know, that doesn't crank your truck necessarily, but th there's other parts that are just mind-blowingly exciting and amazing, and I do believe that as we approach the end of the age, there's going to be a lot of flavor on us. Revival is Christianity with all of its flavor ratcheted up, and it's not the flesh, it's the Lord doing it, it's bringing up all of the beauty, and then, of course, that producing thirst thing, listen, um, I watch some of your lives in certain areas and you make me thirst after the Lord. It's not flattery, it's fact. There are some even in this room tonight and then throughout our broader base in IHOP and Task and you know, I'm sitting there watching Clinton. Did you see his shoes? His shoes were great, man. I was looking at his shoes. Um, I was looking at Clinton and I'm thinking, I, I wish, I, he's probably mid to late 20s, somewhere around, probably mid 20s and I'm thinking, I, I wish I had had the spiritual substance and the faith at that age to be doing what you're doing and we've got a mission base full of people like that they make me thirsty some of you that are in your 60s and your 70s and you're still pressing into the Lord you make me thirsty some of you that have overcome abuse and abandonment and rejection and you have not said no to God you make me thirsty you're salty in the kingdom and that's what Jesus is teaching here now we got to go on a little bit further because he does describe something in this this metaphor of salt that is really a potential loss that Jesus inserts here look at what he says this is this is kind of intense he says if the salt has lost its taste how shall its saltiness be restored so remember he's saying my my disciples my people your salt that's your that's who you are but if you lose who you are if the salt loses its taste how shall its saltiness be restored are there any chemists in the room are you a chemist 
good. Okay, so we've got some chemists in the room. I know Polly Bowker is a geologist, so we have smart people in the room that, um, don't call me out publicly on this, but I'm going to try this. So salt, chemically speaking, never loses its essence as sodium chloride. Now you can go home. God bless you. It's been a great evening. That's all you know. It, it never loses its actual compound. It doesn't lose what it is as NaCl, sodium chloride. So Jesus is talking about it losing its taste. If it stays substantially the same, what is he talking about? Well, remember, they used to draw it off of the Dead Sea. They would let the water evaporate. They'd pack the salt. They would sometimes ship the salt. They'd move it all around. And through that moving and packaging, uh, packaging, packaging, <sighs> processing, doing all of that stuff, it would sometimes get mixed in with um, pollutants. Literally, you get dirt in there, you get sand in there, you get grime in there, you get other granules in there. And if that happened on a large enough scale, it would literally become polluted and it would not be effective for the purposes that it had, which was preservation and to add flavor. And so by application here, as Christians, if we're the salt of the earth, and that's who we are in our substance, it's actually possible for us to be, become disconnected with the very identity that we have. In other words, we can lose our flavor, we can lose our substance in the sense of, of, of who we are meant to be, and it happens through the same way, either through pollution, sin, compromise, double-mindedness, half-hearted living, that, that's, that's a pollutant to your soul, and what that, when that happens, you're not acting in the way that you were destined to act. You're living beneath your destiny. And so then in, in those cases, you're, you're actually not being the salt that you are. And then it can be dilution, which may not be, so you got pollution and dilution. It, it may not be necessarily sin, but it may be that you're giving your life away in so many different streams that your salt loses its punch. You're giving most of your time here, most of your efforts here, most of your money here, most of your energies here, most of your, 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 your soul over here, and then you, you come back and, and, and want to stand in the presence of the Lord, and you feel so depleted and so diluted. So Jesus poses this as a, as, as a real possibility. By the way, I think we can, most of us can be candid and say, we've experienced seasons like that. I have. I've experienced, I've been saved almost 25 years, and I've experienced season where I was just, I wasn't salty. I wasn't living out. I was living beneath my destiny. And you reach a certain point in life, and you're like, you've got more years behind you than you do ahead of you, and you're like, I don't want to ever do that again. I don't want to live out in a diluted, low-sodium Christianity. I want to be, I want to be at fever pitch. Now, here's, here's the next step. What happens if we, we lose our saltiness, what happens if we continue to le live beneath our, our destiny, if we don't dignify the honor that Christ has placed upon us? Well, it's an alarming possibility that Jesus illustrates. He says when that happens, that salt is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, that's depressing. That does not sound encouraging. What is he talking about there? Why would people be stepping on salt? Very interesting. When salt got polluted or diluted, 
when it lost its ability to fulfill its purpose in Jesus' day. And remember, they didn't have, I mean, they had to store salt wherever they could. There were places in the temple courtyard that, that people, I wasn't there, but historians will tell you that there were places that they would store massive amounts of salt. And when that salt had lost its, its punch, because the temple marble was often slick and in rainy seasons, somebody had the wise idea to say, well, we've got this salt that we don't have any use for anymore because it's lost its purpose. Let's just throw it out. And they would literally take the salt and they would do like we do during the winter. And when we don't want people to fall on snow, they just would salt the ground with it and people would walk on top of it. And that's what Jesus is likely referring to. It's, it's an actual picture from his day-to-day -day life that everybody would have connected with, and obviously everybody would, would say, yeah, if I'm following him, I don't want to ever end up as salt underneath people's feet on the marble of religion. And so I have to, uh, I have to read his words here, and I see both invitation and warning. The invitation is, Jeff, you're saved by the blood. You're set free, you're delivered, you're forgiven, you're welcome, you're beloved. Holy Spirit dwells within you. You have, a, you have a counselor living within you. You have a guide living within you. You have free access 24-7 to call upon the name of the Lord to, for, for anything that you need. Live like that and live in such a way that it makes people thirsty, that it pushes back on corrosion in the culture and that it, it adds flavor to the world. Live that way, Jeff. And I say, yes, Lord, I'm gonna live that way. But if I chose not to, there's the very real possibility that all of that which he invited me to would never be touched. I'd never enter into it, and ultimately, I would not serve his purposes. Now, this is not an issue of the Lord saying, yeah, you didn't work hard enough, you're out of the kingdom. That's not what he's saying here. This is an issue about our interaction with the people around us, the culture around us, and, in the, in the, and we're talking about living conspicuously our lives uh, for the glory of God in, in, in the eyes of other people. And what Jesus says is this, yeah, that kind of salt cannot serve my purposes. Let me just toss it aside. And some people won't like that, but... He's warning us about something, so it's not an empty warning. And so we do well to say, yeah, I don't want to ever have that be my destiny. So he switches metaphors on us here, and he moves from salt to light. And so as he's already talked to us about a seasoned life, he's going to take a few minutes, and he's going to talk to us about a shining life. And maybe this is a metaphor that might be a little bit more easy for us. So he makes this real surprising declaration. He says to all of his disciples that are gathered there, he says to them, you are the light of the world. Now, why do I call that surprising? Well, because earlier he had made this de declaration. I am the light of the world. You are the light of the world. I am the light of the world. As I am in the world, Jesus might say, I am giving off heaven's glorious light. The light of who Jesus is exposes the hidden things of darkness, illuminates the way upon which his followers must walk, illuminates the way to God, illuminates truth. It brings 
natural light brings both illumination and heat. So it provides warmth. And in a, if I can risk this metaphor, in a very cold, dark, and sinful world, Jesus says, I'm the light that illuminates and radiates. I bring heat and I bring light. And so we look at Jesus and we think, yes, he does that. His word is a light unto my feet, a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. And we can easily picture Jesus in light. And some of the prophetic and revelatory passages, Jesus in his glory is displayed as a light that is blinding and glorious. When Paul on the road to Damascus is on his way to persecute more Christians, it says that a light that was brighter than the sun at noon. I, I want you to pause there for a minute. That wasn't poetry. That was a descriptive phrase that literally the glory of Jesus made the sun at noon look dim. I don't have any grid for that. I just know that's the glory of the Son of God. And Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. And then this amazing statement. He says, you all are the light of the world. That the very things that Jesus did for the glory of the Father we do for his glory so he illuminated the kingdom wherever wherever he went if he was touching a leper which broke all the religious taboos but saved a man's life jesus didn't mind breaking religious rules to deliver people note to self he he brought the kingdom to a leper or if he's sitting down having a, a conversation a deep conversation with uh, nicodemus a religious elite he brought the kingdom if he's hanging out at a party with drinkers, like heavy drinkers, now listen, I, the religious spirit hates this. I'm going to tell you, the Bible never says that Jesus ever got intoxicated. So don't write me emails. <laughs> but that his testimony was that he hung out with drunks and he never said, now, wait a minute, that's not fair. Chances are he absolutely did because they also said you hung out with tax collectors and we know that happened. And so wherever Jesus went, he's just like, yeah, if it's a leper, I need to get him in the kingdom. If it's a, a, a blind man, I need to bring the kingdom so he can see. Let me bring him light. Let there be light on him. If, if, if it is a, a woman of ill repute caught in adultery in the moment, in the act, he brought the kingdom to her. They were bringing the law on her. He brought the kingdom to her. But he says, yeah, that's what y'all do. And so when I read this, and he says, y'all bring the kingdom too. That's what y'all do. I, I want to I do that. I don't want to bring anything less than the kingdom light. I don't want to bring shadowy, murky, religious, you know, dimmer switches wherever I go, turning down the light. I want to radiate the light that he says we are and that we have. And so we share in that same role as the light of the world through the word of God and through the indwelling Holy Spirit. If you want to radiate light, read the Bible. Believe the Bible. Study the Bible. Obey the Bible live the Bible, and share the Bible. Listen, I love, I love Christians, but we are a biblically, most of us are a little on the upper side. We're, we're not as young as we once were. But generationally speaking, our, our, our churches are becoming more and more biblically illiterate. 
I mean, it's, I don't even think it's debatable. There's a very well-known preacher who said he gave up on preaching the Bible because he knew that people, when they knew he was preaching out of the Bible, would tune him out. So he just stopped using the Bible. So he didn't ask me my opinion on that, so I, I won't give it here either. But my point being is this. Um, the Bible is nonstop light to you, in you, and through you. And if you want to radiate what, what the Lord, who the Lord is and what he said, just love your Bible. And, and, and listen, if you don't love it, if it's just one of those things where you just you can't vibe with that, um, I would just say because so much has been sacrificed to get us God's word in our language, just go before the Lord and say, Lord, my flesh really doesn't want to study the scripture. He already knows that, by the way. He's not going to go, <gasps> just, my, Lord, my flesh doesn't want to study the Bible. Lord, I feel like I can't understand the Bible. The translations that are available now, if you, if you can, and I'm not being ugly here, but if you can read, you can understand the Bible now. Um, it, it is easily digestible now. And, and if, if you want to, God will illuminate the eyes of your understanding, and you can become a Bible woman, Bible man. And you know what? You're going to love it. You're not going to be upset about it. I can promise you. Yeah, I've been reading my Bible. I've been believing it too. And it's just, you know, that's not the way it works. You're going to, you're going to actually be filled with light. You're, the Holy Spirit can better speak to a person who knows the biblical language because it's his language. He wrote it. I'm all for prophetic words. Love them, love to receive them most of the time, love to give them most of the time. But, but I'm going to tell you, anytime I really want to hear from God, I don't go chase down my friend Hazen Stevens. Hazen's a prophetic dude, but if I really want, need to hear the Lord right now, I'm just going to open my Bible. Why? Because every time I do, light, light. And the Holy Spirit is also able to produce and deepen and keep that light from flickering in us. And so Jesus has said it, guys. Jesus has said, you are the light of the world. So that's who you are. But there is also this cooperation, like if the light's going to shine, our will is the on-off switch. And so we have to cooperate with that. I actually feel God's touch on this right now. I feel like some of you he's inviting to learn how to really devour the word for the very first time. And there is zero shame on you right now. For there, there, don't, don't listen to the voice of, well, you should have already learned that by now. No, he's inviting you right now to start ingesting light so you can start reflecting light. And it'll radically change your approach to the Christian life. So he goes a little further and, and still kind of hanging around this issue of illumination, um, he gives two illustrations, uh, one in verse 14 and one in verse 15. He, he talks about a city on a hill that can't be hidden. Remember, conspicuous Christianity, unhidden Christianity. That's what we're talking about. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. Okay, so it's a little bit of redundancy here, but he's making sure we understand what he's saying. He's like, I'm calling you out of hiding. I'm calling you out of secrecy. This was going to be all the more important after his crucifixion when persecution starts hitting the church. They would have needed to remember these. That no, we can't be in hiding perpetually. We can't retreat. We are a city set on a hill. We are a lamp not to be placed under a basket. And all that that's describing there is the potential for something that is meant to be um, experienced by others being in some way removed from the possibility of them experiencing it. So in essence, he's saying, you're the city on the hill. I've elevated you. 
You're the light that hasn't been dimmed by a basket. So I have illuminated you. I've elevated you and I've illuminated you. Now I'm just going to ask us to get real here. Is that your first kind of feeling about the church, the modern church in America? I'm not convinced that we're actually living an elevated and illuminated life. Um, Now, our, our spiritual family is a little different. There's a lot of illumination, a lot of revelation, a lot of elevation. There's a lot of great stuff going on here. So when I'm actually critiquing here uh, with a little commentary, the state of affairs on the church in America. And so we have got to get to that place where we say, yes, Lord, you have elevated us. It speaks of nobility, a kingdom of priests, and, and it speaks of, of dignity that we, we're, our culture wants us to be ashamed of him. Wants to be us to be embarrassed about our treasuring the word. Wants to label us as wackos when we talk about an invisible God and an invisible Savior who's bodily seated on a throne in heaven, who died on a cross and rose from the dead. They, they think we're nuts when we talk about the ministry of angels, the presence of angels, supernatural works of the Holy Spirit, and, and you know, all of the great good stuff that comes packaged in the, in the gospel. They think we're wackos, but God says, I've actually elevated you. Don't come down to that level and agree with them. Stay elevated. And listen, it's not about pride. It's about honoring God and believing he, he, that we are who we, he says that we are. And then through that, elevated, what does that mean? It means he wants people to look at us. He actually wants people to look at us and discern us and witness us and listen to us. And do you see the pushback in our culture from the enemy? The enemy is saying, I've got to muzzle the bride. The bride talks too much about her groom. We've got to shut her up and shut her down. Let's bring her down. Let's shut her up. And let's see if we can destroy her. That's the enemy speaking through the culture. By the way, both the culture and the enemy end up losing. So just want to remind you, we win. We win. Jesus has got all of this. This is not, oh, how's it going to play out? It's all right. We're, we're, we're fine. But friends, listen, your Christianity, the life that God's given you, um, the love of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, all of the, the riches of our inheritance in Christ, It's a light and it's an illuminated city on a hill where people tired and weary and broken and and far away places, they can see it shining from a distance and they can say, there's life there, there's hope there, there's, there's provision there, somebody's there that can help me. And those pilgrims that are passing through this world that don't know your king, when they see your life, they're gonna be drawn to it. They're gonna be drawn to it. So let's not darken our city and let's not basket our light. This is what he says to do instead. This is his clear expectation. So from verse 15 to 16, here's, he, he actually illustrates these, these expectations. And he says, put it on a stand. Don't put it under a basket. Put that lamp on a stand and it gives light in all the house. In the same way, Let your light, the light that you have, not that you got to go out and get, the light that you have, let it shine before others in the presence of others. Why? Watch this. So they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Isn't this interesting? Because in another place, Jesus really frowns on people doing good works 
that are noticed by other people. So is he giving us two different views? No, it's all in the motivation. The motivation sanctifies the action. If the motivation of your good works is to gain the applause of people, then that work ain't really good, and God's not going to get the glory. But if your motivation is, I'm going to live my life in a way that reflects the beauty of Jesus wherever I go so that people may know him, then that is the right way for your good works to be on display. They're not proud badges of religion. Uh, Folks can spot that a mile away. Um, But it's a lifestyle. And by the way, it's not just about serving in church on Sundays and Wednesdays. That's fine. We need people to serve. By the way, if you're not serving, you should be serving. You're in covenant with this local house, and there's something for you to do here. Different message for a different time. But what this is talking about is intentionally living your life outwardly, conspicuously, in an intentional way that your Christianity is not veiled. It's not hidden, but it's put on display. Why does Jesus want us to do that? Because a Christian life, when lived out faithfully in in the power of the Holy Spirit, is very different from every other life that isn't connected to Christ. So the Christian life, naturally, just by virtue of it being connected to God, the Christian life draws attention. Listen, um, we've heard so many testimonies from people that come into the kingdom, they get saved, And what they'll testify is that there was a Christian in their life that was consistently otherwise than everybody else in the office, everybody else in the school, everybody else in the family, everybody else on on the ball field, that they were very different. And and I I just remember this as a lost man, looking at sold-out Christians and thinking, how bizarre but beautiful that sometimes angers me but it always beckons me there was just something about them and eventually that got me asking the right questions which eventuated into me receiving his light for myself and so that's that's who you are you can actually be that person if God gives you a platform and and all of that stuff that's awesome that's that's great um that may or may not be your calling but I promise you when you walk out of the house tomorrow you have a platform It's everywhere you go. And there are people who are depressed, sad, sick, miserable, angry, hostile, divided, demonically plagued, miserable, depressed, insane. They're everywhere. That is your culture, right? I mean, listen, I ain't making that stuff up. Look at your Facebook feed. You will you'll say, Amen. Jeff was right tonight. People are nuts. And 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 what they need is they need to see something other. Yeah. And that is you. You're that lady. You're that man. So I'm, I'm actually going to tap out here in a second. I'm going to save the next part for, for the next time we're together. I, I just want to let you know that there is um, a call on all of us as believers to press into the Lord and to expect him to honor that pressing in by brightening our lives, more deeply seasoning our lives, and then releasing our lives to people that need what we have. You don't have to be there. there when, when we all get to heaven, 
everybody's going to say in unison, there were no superstar Christians. There aren't any. Listen, take grace out of it. We're all just a different ver version of damned. I mean, that's really, you take grace away from it, we're just a puddle of goo. I mean, we're, there's nothing precious about us apart from the grace of God. So you don't, don't try to be somebody else's Christianity. He's withheld gifts from me that he's given to y'all. He's withheld gifts from y'all that he's given to me. He's really good about what he gives and what he withholds. So I'm not responsible to use what he never gave me. And I'm not going to give an account for not using what he never gave me. And I can sit around thinking I ought to be doing this, but I can't. No, friend, you can actually do what he has for you. You may not know what it is yet, and I have sympathy for that, but don't, don't be content just shrugging, saying, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I can tell you, he, he will speak to you and lead you and guide you to the place where you will find divine appointment, divine provision, divine enablement, and there will be a moment in your life, if you haven't hit it yet, where you will say, this has been what I've been looking for in the kingdom. I, he found me, I found life, but I didn't know my purpose until he led me. But listen, he leads you according to your hunger and thirst. If you're willing and content to live without knowing what he has for you, you'll probably not know it. But if you get to the point like Jeremiah, Jeremiah knew what he was supposed to do. It wasn't producing the results that he wanted. So he got mad and angry and hurt and, and quit. He told God, I quit. And like 10 minutes later, his bones started burning. He said, I tried to quit, but it's like fire in my bones. I can't even quit it good. And um, obviously, he, he went back and, and fulfilled the call of God on his life. You have a call. Every single person in the room, you have a reason. You have a purpose. You have what you need. You have what you need. So if you don't know what it is, or if you're in a season of transition, moving from one thing, the last thing, to the next thing, and you just don't know what it is, I promise you, if you make it your heartfelt desire to know what he has next for you, you're going to find it out. Here's the caveat. He will probably give you something you can do before he gives you the specific thing you're supposed to do. What does that mean? It means this, he may test your servanthood in what you can do, but it's not necessarily your favorite thing, but you know you can do it. There's a kingdom need. Man, I'm preaching to somebody right now. Jesus, help me. There's a kingdom need, and you're like, man, I don't know about that. Uh, that's not really what I had in mind. Well, it may be step one, and step two is what he has in mind for you. And I, I have found that to be true. The first thing, and I'm done, and if you've hung around Meadow slash Newbridge a while, you've heard the story, but I haven't told it in seven or eight months, so here we go. Freshly saved, sober for a week, showed up at my church, sober for two weeks, showed up at my church on an off day because I didn't want to hang around with my old beer buddies. I had to have something to occupy my time. I went to the church. I knocked on my pastor's office door, said, hey, I'm Jeff. I'm the new guy at church. 
I want to do something. How can I help? I figured he'd let me cut the grass or something. He said, oh, Jeff, this is great. We just had vacation Bible school. And out in the fellowship hall, there is this massive puppet stand that I don't have time to break down. Let me give you my toolbox. And as soon as he said that, I was like, Jesus, rapture me right now. I need to go. Lord, help me. Because I'm terrible with tools. Like, like third graders out tool me. I mean, it's just, it's bad. And so he put me out there, and that's not what I wanted to do. It's not. But it was what I could do, sort of. <laughs> it's what I was asked to do. <laughs> so I went out there, and I'm not kidding. It probably would have taken a normal male about 30 minutes. Two and a half hours later, he came out there because it was time for him to go home. I still wasn't close to getting it done. And so he worked with me for about 30 minutes, and he took it apart, and I put it up. But here's the deal. Eight years later, I was voted in to pastor that church, which is this church, sort of. We've gone through some changes, but that's, I'm still in the same stream. But it started with doing, I was just letting my light shine where I could. I was just throwing a little salt out there where I could. I was just trying to, trying to do some works that might glorify the Father. I didn't know what I was doing, but I did what I could. When you can't do the good that you would, do the good that you can. Amen? Let's stand up. So, Father, I'm asking for um, wisdom and faith. Lord, I'm actually asking for faith tonight. You'll give precise wisdom when you're ready, Lord. I'm just praying for faith in the men and women in this room, those that will hear it later on. If they don't know what they're supposed to be doing, they don't know how to let their light out or how to get the salt out of their shaker, then I'm just asking you right now, Lord, tell them you're ready. Tell them that you'll show them. Tell them that you delight to lead them step by step into what's next. And Lord, give them faith to believe that with all of their heart. And God, I'm asking right now, help us to do what you've equipped us to do to be conspicuous Christians, even in the midst of a dark culture that's not overly friendly to us. Thank you for giving us into the kingdom for a time such as this. Help us to glorify you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.